0: Today, I'll cover part two of how to choose a religion, where we'll learn how to test religious claims and discover religious truth. I'm Jason Dooley, and you're listening to the Thinking to Believe podcast. Hey, everyone, thanks for tuning in to part two of how to choose a religion this episode here is special. Last week's was special because it was the 50th episode, but this week's episode is special because this marks the one-year anniversary of the podcast. I launched the first episode on March 23rd of 2022, so this has now been a full year of podcasting, and it's been quite an experience, and again, as I always say, thank you for coming along with me on this journey for your faithful listenership, for promoting this podcast to others. Uh, Without you, I would just be talking into a microphone. So thank you so very much. Before I begin part two of how to choose a religion, I was thinking last week about some things relating to the intellect and the life of a teacher, and I had some life wisdom, if you will, some things that I thought I would share with you, because I know that those of you who listen to this podcast, you are thinkers. You have a life of the mind. You value theology. Uh, Some of you may be going to Bible college or seminary. Um, Some of you may be pastors, but you're thinkers. And I think people who think often have similar struggles. Now, some of the things that I experienced in my own life, maybe you haven't experienced them, but I want to just share a few things that I have learned over the years when it comes to ministry and, you know, especially being a, a teacher and caring about theology that I think you might be able to benefit from. In my younger years, I was very zealous for the truth and I still am zealous for the truth and that I want to know what is true, but I, it was such a passion of mine. And then when I would discover something that was true, I felt it was my mission to convert everybody to that point of view. You know, I was in an organization that held one view predominantly, and I came to believe a different view. And I would then want to seek to convert everybody to my point of view is a, a, a reformation of sorts. And there is a need for reformation, and there is a need to persuade people of truth. But I think it can go too far, where we begin to feel like everybody has to hear our arguments, and if they are sincere, if they love God and they love truth, then they should believe what I believe because the evidence is so compelling. Well, one, I've learned over the years that what... Evidence may seem compelling to you, may not seem compelling to somebody else. And sometimes we're not just, we're not ready at that moment, given our th- current understanding, our current place, to be able to see the truth of what somebody else is saying. There's one particular issue, I won't go into the details now, but there was an issue that I was debating many, many years ago. And a friend of mine was trying to convince me of their point of view, and I disagreed, and I had all sorts of arguments against them. And then years and years later, I came to adopt their view for the very reasons that they were giving me you know decades ago, and for whatever reason back then they just did not seem persuasive to me because remember our, our beliefs are interconnected there's a whole web of beliefs that we have and so given where I was at in my stage of theological growth. I just wasn't prepared to see the truth of what was being said, and I didn't find it persuasive. But years later, I did. So not everybody's going to be persuaded uh, immediately when you give them the information. And true, not everybody's in a position to dialogue. Either they don't have the time because they're too busy, or maybe they don't have the know-how to decipher what it is that you're saying. They don't understand the concepts, or you know what you're saying might contradict what their family has always believed, or their pastor has taught them. And so they're skeptical. And because they don't have the theological resources and training to be able to uh, look into the matter and weigh the arguments for both sides and come to a conclusion, they just are resistant because your idea is the new idea, and we shouldn't take that personally. We need to understand that people are not just intellectual robots. And we can't all be concerned about the same things. What may interest me may not interest somebody else. What I may consider to be very important, somebody else does not consider to be important. Or maybe they're in the midst of studying out one issue, and then you come to them with another issue, and like they just don't have time to deal with it. Um, you know, I have a good friend of mine who presented to me all sorts of arguments for uh, annihilationism, and he's been persuaded that that view is true. And I'm skeptical of it, but I just don't have time right now to look into the evidence. You know, for his view and you know the arguments against his view. I don't have time. Will I get to it someday? Hopefully. But right now, I just don't have time to get in, into that issue because of work schedule and other priorities. So not everybody is going to have the same priorities that you're going to have uh, when it comes to you know, theological matters. I've also come to realize that with a lot of people, it's a waste of time to try to persuade them because some people don't care about the truth. They really don't care. And so or they care more about their social standing. they care more about um, being able to affirm what their denomination has always affirmed. They don't want to change. or they're, uh, you know, there's all sorts of emotional reasons people can have for rejecting uh, something that is true. I've also learned to be comfortable with people disagreeing with me. There was a time in my life where I felt the need to argue with everybody who wanted to argue with me. Anybody who thought that I was wrong, I would spend 10, 20, 30, 40 hours, whatever was necessary. However long they were willing to go, I would go. And of course, it comes to a point where you're like, okay, I can't keep doing this. I don't have the time to engage all the people that want to engage me. Um, and there's going to be people out there that disagree with you. You know, there's people who've written position papers against papers that I've written. I don't have time to read all of them. I don't have time to write responses to all of them. There's going to be people that disagree, and you've got to learn to be comfortable with that. Another thing I've learned is not to be too intellectual. Now, I love intellectual matters. I love thinking. I love academics to an extent, <laughs> um, but one thing I've seen in, in, among theologians and people who love the Bible, they love the word and they pursue theology as a, uh, a profession, if you will. You know, They're studying theology at a Bible college or a seminary. In an academic environment, you can feel the temptation to try to appear very smart. You want to appear as an intellectual. You want to use the big words. You want to get into the Greek and almost prove yourself. Don't fall into this trap of who's got more degrees or who has what degree from what seminary or college. At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. Now use academics to the glory of God, but academics is not the purpose of studying theology. The purpose of studying theology is that we can come to a better knowledge of the truth and share that truth with sinners and to share that truth with God's people. That's our job. And guess what? God's people, for the most part, don't need to hear about the Greek words. They don't need to hear about the syntax that may be necessary sometimes, But oftentimes I hear preachers, you know, the Greek says this and the Greek says that. And oftentimes they don't even know how to really handle the Greek. They're looking at Strong's Concordance, which is the first sign that they don't understand the Greek language. But people just want to hear the truth. They want to hear it explained clearly, simply. Now, I know that some theological topics are not simple. Uh, But our goal as teachers should be to make it as simple as possible, to use as few big words as is necessary. And when we have to use big words, explain the meaning of those words. Because the goal is not for people to think that we're really smart. The goal isn't to prove ourselves as theologians. The goal is for people to better understand the Word of God. So study theology, be committed to a life of the mind, but stay humble Always remember what the purpose of all this is and don't get caught up in feeling like you have to convert the whole world (laughs) And, and nobody can disagree with you. Just be comfortable in where you're at theologically, where you've grown, share the truth with those who are interested and those who are not, that's on them. Let me just quickly recap what we covered in the last episode when we began this little mini series on how to choose a religion. I first established that religion is testable. Religious pluralists want to say that religious knowledge is unobtainable, we can't know it, or there's nothing to know, and so therefore you just pick the fantasy of your choosing. But I think we can test religious claims. Religious claims are not beyond testing. And some of the same things that we use to test ordinary claims uh, about the physical world, uh, we can also use to test uh, about the religious world. So the four I gave were the test of coherence, the test of nonsense, the test of authority, and the test of observation. And then I began to apply those to religion to see... How do we choose a religion based on some of these tests? So we can eliminate some religions based on these tests. And then we can, um, you know, affirm some religions based on these tests. So like the test of coherence that eliminates a religion like Hinduism because it's self-referentially incoherent in its teaching that we do not exist. And yet somehow we are supposed to recognize that we do not exist. How can you recognize you don't exist if there is no you <laughs> to do any recognizing? Uh, then we have the test of authority, where is your view attested to by a competent and trustworthy, reliable authority? And the test of observation, and this is what we spent most of our time on, is the religion, um, is it true to our experience? Is it true to what we know about the world? Or does it make claims that are contradictory to what we know is true about the world or is contradictory to our experience. So for example, any religion that's going to say that morality is an illusion is going to be false because if there's anything we know, it's that there are moral truths. Any worldview that would deny uh, moral truths is a false worldview and it can be excluded. Um, We showed how every... Religion is a worldview, and they make claims about origins, uh, the identity and purpose of man, and you know, morality, uh, as well as our destiny. And so we began to explore origins and what different religions claim about origins, as well as the identity and purpose of man, and found that there are religions that are teaching falsehoods about these things. But Christianity is... Uh, the, explains these things in a way that is true to what we know about the world and true to our experience. And so we left off talking about the identity and purpose of man. And today we're going to pick up where we left off, and we're going to finish out talking about the test of observation, um, how observations can explain morality and the destiny of man. When you're choosing a religion, you want to choose a religion that accurately diagnoses the human condition and provides a solution for that. And one thing is quite obvious uh, in our world is that the human condition is one of evil. We have a problem with evil. We have a problem with moral badness. Now, what can account for our moral experience, what sort of religions can account for that and which ones do not? So think about our moral experience. One, uh, our experience of morality is universal, that everybody has a moral sense. And there are some things that seem to be irrefutably moral and other things that are irrefutably immoral. Everybody agrees on them, and we know that those moral truths apply to all people. But where do those moral truths come from? What can explain why everybody is aware of this moral truth? Um, Secondly, another aspect of our moral experience is that we have a feeling of oughtness that precedes our acts. Before we actually do something, we have a feeling that precedes it, and we feel like we ought to do it. And that feeling of oughtness will compel us to act in a certain way or to refrain from acting in a certain way. In other words, it's a sense of moral responsibility. We have a sense that moral rules are binding on us, that we have a moral duty to act in certain ways. But why? Why would we feel that? Why ought we obey these moral values? What can explain that? The third aspect of our moral experience is that there is a sense of goodness that we feel when we follow our moral intuitions, when we do what we felt compelled to do. And yet there's a feeling of guilt when we fail to do our moral duties. And it causes in us this sense of dread that we're going to have to answer for what we've done. We feel shame. We try to hide our mistakes because there's a certain fear of punishment. Why do we feel certain ways when we act certain ways. What can explain that? Where do we get the idea of justice from? This is part of our human experience. All humans have a sense of justice. Why is it that the good guys always win in the story and the bad men always get what they had coming to them? And if you have to see a movie where that doesn't happen, where the bad guys win and the good guys lose, there's a sense of let down like what like why would you like we want the good guys to win and the bad guys to be punished why is that why do we want justice why is the law of sowing and reaping universally recognized among human beings what can explain that well hinduism can't explain it because according to hinduism morality is an illusion remember all is is one brahman there's reality is one And so there is no distinction even between good and evil. So on Hinduism, evil is an illusion. Good is an illusion. But we know that good and evil are not illusions. They're real, and they have real effects in the real world. Naturalism cannot explain our moral experience. It can't explain the moral oughtness that we feel. It can't account for the existence of moral values, moral truths. It can account for why people might have beliefs about morality, but it can't account for actual moral values and moral duties, because those things, if they exist, are not physical things. They are immaterial in nature. Um, Can some impersonal force explain it? No. Um, Even if there was some abstract principle in the world or some force, it can't account for our moral duties, because you still have to ask, why ought I obey it? What, what, uh, In what way am I beholden to some impersonal force? There's no sense of obligation we have to a force. Obligation and duty only make sense in the context of a personal being. So maybe that's the explanation. A personal being is why we have the moral experience that we have. Because obligation it seems best understood in terms of minds and persons. It doesn't even make any sense to talk about moral obligation unless you're talking about uh, you know, a, a personal God to whom we are morally obligated. Obligation begs for some person to be obligated to. And of course, that's going to narrow the field of religions that can account for this feature of our experience. I and mean, without a personal being, who gives us a universal and objective standard of goodness, and to whom we're responsible, the moral duty becomes a nonsensical notion. But Christianity can explain this. Christianity explains our moral experience by saying that our moral sense finds its source in a transcendent moral law giver. And that moral law giver has a nature that is perfectly good and that provides the standard for goodness. And the reason why we have knowledge of the, you know, the goodness and evil is because we are made in the image of God. And because he is a moral being, we are moral beings. He has moral knowledge. We have moral knowledge. But our problem is we're broken. Where'd the evil come from? Because we rebelled against God. When we break a moral law, we're not just you know, breaking some arbitrary rule, but we're offending the very one who gave the law. We're violating God's holy nature, and that introduces the concept of guilt. When we violate a, uh, the moral nature of God, when we do something against his character, we offend him. We cause a rift in our relationship, and we feel shame, we feel guilt for what we've done. And all of us recognize that justice will be meted out for wrongdoing. That's why we try to make excuses for our bad behavior. We're trying to say, I know I'm wrong, I know I deserve punishment, but I should be excused for these reasons. All of us are guilty, and all of us know that we are guilty. And again, Christianity can explain this in Christianity has a solution for this, namely the forgiveness that comes from Jesus's death on the cross. All right. The fourth aspect of any worldview is destiny. What is our future? Man longs to be immortal. There is a near universal fear of death. Now, some people make it over that fear, but all of us have experienced the fear of dying. We want to be able to live forever. I remember personally being a child. I couldn't have been more than five years old. Very young. But I distinctly remember where I was at when I learned that I would die. That my mom was going to die. My sister was going to die. And there was such a sadness in me. Um, I don't even know how I understood what death was, but it was like... I knew that I would not be here anymore, that they would not be here. There was such a sense of loss. I don't remember if I cried or not, but I remember I was extremely sad over this. William Lane Craig shares a similar experience when his father told him that he would die and it brought him to tears. And he said his father tried to comfort him by saying, well, you know, death is going to be a long way off. But uh, as Jean-Paul Sartre said, whether it's a few minutes away or whether a few years makes no difference once you have lost eternity. All of us want to be immortal. Why is that? Could it be because we were made to be immortal? Could it be that our the way we were created was to be able to live forever? But if all we do is live to die and there is no God and there is no religion that is true, well then, Our lives have no more significance than mosquitoes. Who cares if we die? There's no purpose to life. There's a part of human beings that aren't even fulfilled in this world. And C.S. Lewis makes an argument from this where he says, maybe the reason why we are not fulfilled in this world is because we were made for another world. He says, quote, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I find that very interesting. We also desire to be in relationship with people and to know people on an intimate level. And I think this also should give us a clue as to the meaning of life and and our destiny. Because if we find the most satisfaction and meaning out of loving relationships with others, maybe we were made to be relational creatures. Maybe this says something about our destiny. That our end is to be in relationship with God and with each other forever, growing in relationship. And that's exactly what Christianity teaches, that man will live forever. He'll be either in heaven or hell based on your response to Jesus. But in this future world, all evil will be eradicated. There'll be perfect justice, perfect creation. We'll have immortality. That's the destiny that Christianity gives So if you have a religion, however, that the future of mankind does not match with human beings' deepest longings and intuitions, then that ought to be a clue that there's something wrong about that religion. The thing I like about Christianity that sets Christianity apart from all these other religions is that it is the most testable of all religions. There's a lot of religious points of view where it's very philosophical, um, it's maybe you know more about morality, or makes claims that are impossible to be able to either verify or to falsify, and yet Christianity makes claims about history, makes tr- claims about physical reality that can be checked out. Christianity has prophetic claims that you can check to see whether or not there was a fulfillment of those prophecies. Christianity teaches that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. We can use historical investigation to research the original reports of this to see whether or not they are historically credible. Like you can actually examine this. We can go dig up things in Egypt and in Israel. That will confirm what we see in scripture. Some religions may not be very testable. They're testable in certain areas, but Christianity is very testable. And the thing that blows my mind and convinces me that Christianity is true is not only is it open to testing and the, and the more you can test it, the more uh, possibilities there are to falsify it. And yet every which way it's tested, it proves to be accurate. It proves to be reliable. And we can't test every Christian claim. There are some claims that are just beyond testing. But when the things that can be tested are tested and are found to be true, then that gives us good reason to believe that Christianity is true. I don't just believe in Christianity because I happen to like it or because my family was Christian, because it makes me feel good. I believe in Christianity Because I believe it's true. I've had an encounter with God that has confirmed the truth for me, and I've been able to independently verify its veracity through investigation. If your religious worldview can't be tested, then it shouldn't be trusted. If your religious worldview fails critical tests of truth, it shouldn't be believed. If your religious worldview doesn't reflect what we know to be true about the world and our experience of the world, it should not be followed. Christianity has passed the test. Christianity has great explanatory power. It makes sense of basic human experience and knowledge. It makes sense of origins, rationality, libertarian free will, rights, intuition, the existence of the laws of logic. Uh, personal identity through change, uh, human equality, um, moral responsibility, guilt, justice, judgment, all of these things Christianity makes sense of. It's consistent with what we know about the world. Christianity is based on a reliable authority, Jesus. He proved his authority by predicting and then fulfilling his resurrection from the dead. And he also taught that there's going to be a coming judgment. And on that day, any old God isn't going to do. So I encourage you to put your religious beliefs to the test and choose the religion that proves to be true. All right, next week, I am going to begin a new extended series on divorce and remarriage. You will not want to miss this. I'm going to be looking at this issue in a very in-depth way, and I know it's such a hot topic. It has great practical importance in the lives of so many people. And many people want to know, what does the Bible teach about this? And unfortunately, it's not being taught a lot in the church today. So if you've ever been interested in knowing what the Bible has to say on this topic, then you will not want to miss the next series on divorce and remarriage. To read my latest thoughts, visit the Thinking to Believe blog at thinkingtobelieve.com. Or if you'd like to comment on today's podcast, you can do so at the Thinking to Believe Facebook page. You can also send me any questions you might have at thinkingtobelieve at gmail.com. Until next time, keep thinking to believe.